This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour. Appreciate you tuning in to Trumpet Hour today. I'm Joel Hilliker. The World Economic Forum just completed its most recent conference in Davos, Switzerland. This is a meeting of elite movers and shakers, politicians, business leaders, and others from around the world to talk about how to shape the future of humanity. This group has put forward some shockingly radical ideas that undermine free markets, that advocate the elimination of all private property and other major efforts to completely overthrow the current world order and replace it with one of their own imagination. We'll start with a report from trumpet writer Andrew Miller about this latest meeting and pull back the curtain on the dangerous origins of this influential organization. Our second story is terribly disturbing. It's about a homosexual couple from Atlanta, Georgia, two men who adopted two boys and have now been charged with unspeakable crimes against these children and really have made themselves a cautionary tale about the evils of the LGBT movement that the media and others want to ignore. Our third segment is from the Philippines. We'll have a conversation with trumpet contributor Nikolai Gilyar about the moves being made by his nation's new president, Ferdinand Marcos Jr., toward China and away from the United States. And at the end of the show, I'll have a last word about spine, why you need to have a strong one, both physically and metaphorically, and how to strengthen yours. Let's start now with this report on the World Economic Forum given by Andrew Miller. Political leaders, chief executive officers, journalists, and activists from around the world gathered in Davos, Switzerland from January 16th to January 20th to address the state of the world and discuss priorities for the year ahead. This gathering marked the World Economic Forum's first meeting in Davos since the start of the coronavirus pandemic. So the roughly 2,700 world leaders in attendance had a lot to discuss. The theme of the meeting was cooperation in a fragmented world, and the conversation topics ranged from climate change to the global energy crisis to supply chain shortages to runaway inflation to the war in Ukraine. In fact, delegates discussed so many crises that they resorted to a term popularized by the former European Commission President Jean-Claude Juncker, polycrises. Yet underneath the hype, The World Economic Forum's goal is to solve problems by implementing a great reset of capitalism, whereby global stakeholders cooperate to achieve shared goals. Or in more plain language, the leaders of the World Economic Forum want private businesses to serve the interest of their own curated list of stakeholders, rather than the interest of the actual business owners themselves. Professor Klaus Schwab, the founder and executive chairman of the World Economic Forum, claims to have invented stakeholder capitalism about 50 years ago. Yet this economic system really has a long and dark history. The Italian philosopher Giorgio Agamben calls it communist capitalism, while American scholar Michael Rechtenwald calls it corporate socialism. 
This is because stakeholder capitalism resembles the corporate socialism used in Juan Perón's Argentina, Engelbert Dolfus's Austria, Augusto Pinochet's Chile, Anton Pavlik's Croatia, Pierre Laval's France, Adolf Hitler's Germany, Benito Mussolini's Italy, Francisco Franco's Spain, and many other corporatist states. The former judge Andrew Napolitano defines fascism as private ownership but government control. Such an economic system differs from communism, which is government ownership and government control, and from capitalism, which is private ownership and private control. So many analysts, such as Mark Hornshaw at the the Foundation for Economic Education, have noted that Klaus Schwab's stakeholder capitalism is really just Orwellian newspeak for economic fascism, a system that replaces the hopes and dreams of small business owners with the iron will of ruling elites. Schwab has been trying to spread his neo-fascist ideas worldwide for the past five decades. He has attracted an incredible number of elites to the World Economic Forum, but has had little success in pushing his ideas on everyday people until the coronavirus pandemic convinced millions of people to accept drastic government interventions. This makes Schwab's role in planning the world's economic and political response to COVID-19 all the more sinister. In May 2018, more than two years before COVID-19 leaked out of the Wuhan Institute of Virology, the World Economic Forum collaborated with the John Hopkins Center for Health and Security to stimulate a national pandemic response. Dubbed Claude X, this simulation previewed almost every aspect of a COVID crisis, from lockdowns to mass unemployment to stimulus spending. Afterwards, The World Economic Forum collaborated with John Hopkins and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation to conduct Event 201, another simulation of a national pandemic response involving a novel coronavirus. While Obama administration officials like Dr. Anthony Fauci were working with officials at the Wuhan Institute of Virology to engineer a virus, officials at the World Economic Forum were working to engineer a lockdown. These facts should concern everyone. We don't know what went on behind closed doors, but we do know that world leaders were not caught off guard by the pandemic. Just days before President Donald Trump was inaugurated, Dr. Fauci warned that a pandemic was coming, and top officials at the World Economic Forum already had a plan in place that would be triggered by a disease pandemic. Lockdowns, unemployment, government stimulus spending were always part of this plan. In other words, global elites not only anticipated a disease pandemic, they were excited by the opportunity. It would help them fundamentally transform the world's economic system and their control over everyday people. In his book, COVID-19, The Great Reset, Klaus Schwab explains how hyperinflation destroyed the German Deutschmark in the 1920s and how rising debt levels may actually destroy the American dollar today. His logic is unassailable. 
Yet given his role in planning pandemic stimulus spending before there was even a pandemic, you have to wonder whether the World Economic Forum engineered the Great Reset to destroy the dollar. Klaus Schwab's book reads, The deep disruption caused by COVID-19 globally has offered societies an enforced pause to reflect on what is truly of value. With the economic emergency responses to the pandemic now in place, the opportunity can be seized to make the kind of institutional changes and policy choices that will put economies on a path towards a fairer, greener future. The history of radical rethinking in the years following World War II, which included the establishment of the Bretton Woods institutions, the United Nations, and the European Union, and the expansion of the welfare states, shows the magnitudes of the shifts that is possible. So here we have a neo-fascist economist writing about how economic emergency responses of his own design represents an opportunity to rethink the entire free market system that has dominated the Western world for a lifetime since the defeat of the Axis powers in World War II. This is some shocking analysis to read. Even if Schwab didn't deliberately engineer the Great Reset to destroy the dollar, it is pretty evident that he would love to see the dollar fall anyway. His book continues, even though the Federal Reserve and the U.S. Treasury manage the dollar and its influential networks worldwide with efficiency, skeptics emphasize that the willingness of the U.S. administration to weaponize the U.S. dollar for geopolitical purposes, like punishing countries and companies that trade with Iran and North Korea, will, ince- will inevitably incentivize dollar stakeholders to look for alternatives. The Chinese renminbi could be an option, but not until strict capital controls are eliminated and the renminbi turns into a market-determined currency, which is unlikely to happen in the foreseeable future. The same goes for the euro. It could be an option, but not until doubts about a possible implosion of the eurozone dissipate for good, which again is an unlikely prospect in the next few years. As for a global virtual currency, there is none in sight yet, but there are attempts to launch national digital currencies, which may eventually dethrone the U.S. dollar supremacy. So Schwab admits that the only reason the dollar is still the reserve currency is that the renminbi and the euro are in even worse shape. But this could change if China implements free market reforms or Europe unites into a super state with the authority to dictate its members' fiscal policy. Some might reason that it makes little sense to provoke a currency crisis to destroy the dollar if that currency crisis also destroys the euro and virtual every other major currency, but the trumpet has noted for years that the euro was designed to fail from its inception. Good economists know that you cannot have a stable monetary union without a centralized body making decisions about the collection and expenditure of taxes. So the euro will never be stable until the nations of the eurozone surrender their independence to a federal government in the same way U.S. states surrender to Washington, D.C. The World Economic Forum's response to the COVID-19 pandemic is very much forcing these member states to do just that. The World Economic Forum's role in the Great Reset becomes even more concerning when you realize that its founder has ties back to Nazi Germany. Klaus Schwab was born in 1938 to Eugene William Schwab and his wife. His father moved from Switzerland to Germany during the Third Reich, 
and became a director at a company that used slaves to manufacture key atomic bomb technologies for Adolf Hitler's Third Reich. Of course, Klaus was too young to be complicit in his father's crimes, but look at his ideology and the change he is pushing for in the world. His stakeholder capitalism is close enough to the corporate socialism of Nazi Germany that you could say the Great Reset is succeeding where Hitler's economists and generals failed. The declassified document known as the Red House Report provides a detailed account of a secret meeting at the Hotel Rotes House in Strasbourg, France on August 10, 1944, where Nazi officials ordered an elite group of German industrialists to plan for a Fourth Reich. This report is reprinted in our free booklet, Germany's Conquest of the Balkans. Many of the Eurozone's founders were also closet Nazis building an empire. These men understood economics and designed a monetary union that would force the nations of Europe to unite into a superstate. In his 1997 book, The Principalities and Powers of Europe, Adrian Hilton described the ambitions of the Eurozone's founders. Europe's nations could be guided towards a superstate without their people understanding what is happening, he says. This can be accomplished by successive steps, each disguised as having an economic purpose, but which will eventually and irreversibly lead to federation. Euro-Pacific's capitals, John Brown, elaborated, In essence, the euro was created as a lever to encourage a complete European Union rather than as a currency representing an already unified economy. In other words, the Eurozone's founders deliberately planted the seeds of a future crisis they knew only they could fix. Schwab's World Economic Forum was initially called the European Management Forum, and its first meeting was under the patronage of the European Commission and European Industrial Associations. Its allegiance is to the European Union, and its goal is to create a crisis that will overthrow the dollar and force the nations of Europe to unite into a superstate. Towards this end, the COVID-19 outbreak has given it an unprecedented opportunity to create a hyperinflation crisis that robs ordinary citizens of their money until they are willing to surrender their freedom for a new currency. The late Christopher Storey, a former advisor to British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, believed Germany might introduce a gold-backed Deutschmark once the euro inevitably failed. Yet regardless of Germany's exact plans, the Great Reset will cause people to surrender their liberty in return for economic security and relief from hyperinflation. The late Herbert W. Armstrong predicted that a financial crisis would likely be a catalyst prompting European nations to unite into a United States of Europe. Specifically, he warned that a massive banking crisis could suddenly trigger European nations to unite as a new world power larger than either the Soviet Union or the United States. Once the euro is supported by a central government strong enough to regulate its member states' taxation and spending policies, the dollar's days as the world reserve currency will be numbered as a new Holy Roman Empire rises on the world scene. And you can reference our free booklet, The Holy Roman Empire in Prophecy, for much more information on what the Bible has to say about this last and seventh resurrection of the Holy Roman Empire and how this new fascist economic system that Klaus Schwab is 
pushing is prophesied to play out. is the voice of the Trumpet News Magazine. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. We're going to talk about a subject that does not get covered in the news. It's very disturbing to even think about, but it is a real problem. And the fact that people won't talk about it is making it far worse. To talk about this, we have from our office in England, trumpet writer Richard Palmer. Hello there. Good afternoon. So I would like to start by talking about this story that recently came about came out about this uh, this homosexual couple in Atlanta, Georgia, William Zulak and Zachary Zulak. Tell us about them and and what they represent within the LGBT community, and then what we just learned about them. Yeah, it's it's a pretty horrific story. So these are a uh, a quote unquote married homosexual couple two men and then they went through a christian special needs adoption agency and they adopted two boys who are now aged nine and eleven and these two you know they have their houses they have a house mat saying it's like something like the gayest house in atlanta they're pretty prominent at homosexual pride events and their instagram is filled with all of these images that really try to put this picture of a also family uh to the point that they quite regularly have different LGBT organizations contact them asking, well, can we use your, your pictures in our promotional material? They're very literally poster children for this movement. Uh, And they'll try and, you know, share these cutesy uh, family moment type, type pictures. And the reality is about as horrible as you can imagine. So both these men have been raping these children. They've been committing all kinds of brutal acts. They've been videoing themselves doing this. They've then, as if that's not enough, taken these children and prostituted them around to pedophiles in their area. Uh, it's, it, it, it's, it's absolutely horrific. It looks like they adopted these children so that they could abuse and exploit them in a, in a horrible way. I guess the, the 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 news has been pretty scant about this, uh, but there would be people, I suppose, that would say, well, this is uh, an unfortunate and tragic uh, one-off incident, um, but you are looking at evidence to show that this is actually something that is more frequent uh, than people would want to believe. That's right. I mean, this is one of the most horrific crimes that I've heard of in a, in a, in a long time. And I think if you're at all, I know if you're if you're relying on non-mainstream sources for this news, you've probably seen this everywhere. I feel like I have. Uh, and then the minute you try and search for something like CNN, New York Times, I spent quite a while looking for this news story on some of those different news sites and found nothing, no mention of it, nothing at all. Uh, and what you look at is. Yeah, I think if you, again, if you get your news sources from non-mainstream news sites, you're probably not all that surprised to see this news story, as disgusting as it is. And then 
again, there's a whole side of this that is that is not really talked about in the mainstream. So there are quite a number of surveys, for example, uh, that have concluded that homosexuals make up somewhere around 3% of the population and commit somewhere in the region of 30 to 40% of sex crimes. That, that has been established across a whole range of, of different surveys. Uh, and that you've got, you know, yeah, there are some horrible people that are heterosexual as well. And, and yes, there are some that, that have committed some horrible crimes too. But this particular segment of society is massively, massively overrepresented. And one of the biggest studies that looked into this was all the way back in 2012. It was called the New Family Structure Study. So that took over a couple of different kind of investigations, ultimately 15,000 Americans aged 18 to 39, and asked them about their experiences growing up and asked them about their parents. You know, were, your par- did, were you brought up by your biological parents for your whole life, your mother and father? Were your parents divorced? Uh, did you have a mother that had a lesbian relationship while you were growing up? Did you have a father that had a, a homosexual relationship while you were growing up? Those kind of things. And what this study also, again, found is that you have uh, the homosexuals massively overrepresented in those carrying out these attacks. So for those growing up in an intact family, uh, 2% said that they had been touched sexually by a parent or other adult while they were growing up. For those who who had a homosexual father, 6% said the same thing. For those with a lesbian mother, 23%. Mm. It's very stark. Uh, 8% of those brought up in an intact family said they were forced to have sex against their will at some point. Not necessarily while they were a child, uh, but that's what they said. Even for those that, with a homosexual, even that is astonishingly high. 8%. I know. That, yeah, I yeah. It's, it's yeah. stunning. I had a hard time even believing that statistic. That is that is pretty that is pretty terrible. But then, for those with a homosexual dad, that's thirty one percent. Twenty five percent with a lesbian mother, uh, and then suicide uh, thoughts of suicide. Five percent uh, of those growing up with an intact family said they they became suicidal at some point. 12% of those with a lesbian mother, 24% of those with, with a homosexual father. Now, you know, this, is a stu- the, the, this is a study that is encar- establishing correlations, not causations. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's not saying, well, who touched you, who raped you, those kind of questions. But when there's a, pa- when there's a set of correlation like this, uh, you know, this is something you would have thought a lot more people would be, invest- would be looking into. Well, yeah, I think about how much the um, the LGBT uh, cause is characterized as uh, we need to look after the this un, unrepresented faction of society, this vulnerable faction. We need to uh, have compassion on them, and uh, to think that that kind of compassion quote-unquote is coming at the expense of another genuinely vulnerable segment of society these children uh, who are affected by these kinds of relationships it, it just shows the selective nature of the, uh, the the way that the movement looks after the uh, the downtrodden the weak the the vulnerable and you look at what the bible says about this generation and and our society 
and God's outrage is, is very clear. And you see these stories and you, know, you really understand why, where it's, you know, it is not just these two particular, this particular couple who abused this, this one child. There is so much of society is complicit in their crime and in pushing this movement that there is clear established evidence is going to hurt the most vulnerable. I mean, how much effort has been put into, how many people have been involved, how many lawmakers have said yes mm -hmm. to allowing homosexual couples to, up, to, to adopt kids mm -hmm. while you've got all of this evidence. And uh, it's, you see this then with you know, how many businesses promote homosexuality and especially, say, Homosexual Pride Month here in the UK, you, if you, if you, if you only shopped at, if you tried to avoid all shops that didn't support homosexual or that supported homosexual pride or that put the rainbow flag up, you would starve in homosexual this Gay Pride Month mm. because they're all all in on it. And I think in so many ways it's cynical. I think a lot of these shops and things maybe don't care too much either way you know it, it becomes a thing every time where you compare their logos in the west to the logos that they use during the same month in the middle east and of course these same companies don't do anything any kind of gay pride in mm. saudi arabia sure uh so but it's for a lot of these companies and then a lot of these politicians it's all about cynical self-interest. And who are they sacrificing in the name of cynical self-interest? Right. And to try to appeal to this democratic, to try and look uh, virtuous or to conform to this one segment society's idea of virtue, it's the children. And they just throw the children under the bus. And there's no... I think it's a case of they don't want to know. This study was from 2012. There's been a lot of effort to discredit it. I don't see where anyone's tried to follow up and do a similar size study, probably because they're afraid of what the answers would show. Right. And uh, you see this again and again and again. You see this with you just judiciary. You see this with the way that Britain responded, where you had all of its scandals, where uh, you had men of largely Pakistani origin raping again children fatherless children children that were brought up in the adoption system and, and didn't have parents and they were allowed by politicians and and media and so many people to and and, and are still being allowed even after a lot of this has been exposed uh to abuse a huge segment of, of the most vulnerable because they didn't want to look bad because they didn't want to to look racist because they didn't want to come under criticism and yeah, we're sacrificing the most vulnerable so that we can appear to conform to, to this new morality. Yeah, really one of the, uh, a strong theme in the Bible that you see from beginning to end is how uh, protective God is of the fatherless and the widow and the, uh, the, the, the weakest and the most vulnerable people in society and he he talks a lot about how he hears their cry and he will avenge those who go after them and when you see this type of thing taking place in society and you look at it in light of scriptures like that you get a strong sense of just how angry god is uh, by this kind of behavior and it is for these types of sins in society that he is going to avenge himself on 
the world around us. Uh, I, I think these types of, uh, the way that you're describing it, the amount of complicity within the judiciary, within the media, within the political class that are allowing this and enabling this within the entertainment industry to, uh, to go after and to victimize uh, these young people in particular, uh, this is not a one-off situation. This really is a widespread systemic kind of problem that we're dealing with, and it, it is going to have to be dealt with systemically in a way that only God can do it. Right, and you read Isaiah 57, verse 5, for example, it it says it talks about Israel inflaming yourself with idols under every green tree, slaying the children in the valleys under the clefts of the rocks. And you know, what are, what are we doing to to this indifference to to children that a society shows in God's eyes? Uh, and I think in any rational person's eyes, I mean, how is it different to when ancient societies would kill their own children or sacrifice them to their idols? That's what we're doing in in so many ways. Uh, just warping minds the, the the lgbt movement that's then really or the transgender movement that's springing up now that there's a whole industry that's profiting of young people uh, going you know harming their own bodies and things like that uh you know it's a uh, it, it 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 really is despicable and you and you see god's anger at that and it helps you see okay well this is why we need the the level of corruption and this or, or level of correction that us nations do and and this is uh you see the love more clearly, I think, in the correction that is coming when you see the level of evil that, that God is correcting and uh, you know, the, 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 the level of you know, the family is one of the most precious things that, that there is. It's, it's something that can lead to so many positive experiences. It's something that brings so much joy now. It's something that you look at what the Bible says about family. It contains such a wonderful built-in vision of God's way of life and his future. Uh, for all of mankind and the future that he has for children. And by taking something uh, so wonderful and, and perverting it the way that we have, you know, it is a subject, like you say, it needs a, a systemic solution. But there are wonderful blessings that will come when God brings that, uh, that solution and that re-education in. Yeah, I think the other uh, point that this brings to mind is just what a difference there is between uh, the you, what you called new morality, the morality that has been pushed by a certain segment within society, and the absolute morality of the Bible that shows us what right and wrong is when we depart from that those absolute standards that God reveals to us, and we're just making our way in the world and trying to figure out right from wrong in our own thinking, we can really be led into some horrific problems. And these uh, these individuals in powerful positions who are aiding and abetting this movement because they are uh, they want to show themselves as compassionate and hospitable and uh, understanding are allowing these egregious, tragedies to take place they're abetting those they're they're enabling those things uh and we do have to judge by fruits the fruits of this movement produce this kind of appalling uh behavior in people and you just have to say this is what god wants this is his standard we need to stick to that and trust that that is going to to, to work out for the best he defines what 
actual compassion is compassion on those those children would look completely different than the the compassion that is being pushed in the world around us we do have a booklet redefining family that talks about a lot of these issues in quite a lot of detail you can get a free copy of this book by looking at the literature library in uh, at the trumpet.com uh, and it, it really does give a lot of biblical instruction on on how to look at this in the way that God does. We've been talking with trumpet writer Richard Palmer about this horrific news story out of Atlanta, a homosexual couple that abused the children they adopted. You can look for his article at thetrumpet.com. I'll have a uh, trumpet brief about this up this evening. Thanks so much, Mr. Palmer. We appreciate you talking with us. Thanks for having me. is Trumpet Hour with Joel Hilliker. The Philippines has been a close friend and ally with the United States since before World War II, but this relationship has been changing in recent years as the Philippines looks more closely to China. The nation's new president, Ferdinand Marcos Jr., traveled to Beijing earlier this month. To talk about this, we have from Manila in the Philippines, Trumpet contributor Nikolai Giliar. Hello there. Hello there, sir. Really appreciate you uh, joining us today. So tell us about President Marcos's visit to China. So from January 3 to January 5, Philippine President Ferdinand Bongbong Marcos Jr. <laughs> traveled to Beijing to meet with high-level Chinese officials, including Chinese General Secretary Xi Jinping. Marcos and Xi signed 14 bilateral agreements that will boost the two nations' cooperation in areas of agriculture, infrastructure development, maritime security, and tourism. Marcos has also secured $22 billion worth of Chinese investment, which is intended to spur the Philippine economy. Before departing, Marcos said this, quote, I took a similar journey to China as a young man several decades ago, and I was witness to a historic milestone in Philippine foreign policy as I accompanied my mother, former First Lady Imelda Marcos, in 1976, as she laid the groundwork for the establishment of diplomatic relations between our two countries." End quote. Marcos there is referring to the history uh, of, her, of his mother uh, leading a diplomatic mission to Maoist China in 1974 to establish formal connection between Philippines and China. Marcus Sr. eventually visited China two years later and officially formalized relations between China and the Philippines. Xi Jinping himself said this after uh, echoing Marcus's uh, uh, memory there with uh, his dad. Hopefully your visit will not only be a trip of reminiscence, but also a trip of opening the future. 
China will always place the Philippines at a prioritized direction for neighboring diplomacy and to insist looking the China-Philippines relations from a height of strategy and overall situation, end quote. I think uh, Mr. Marcus' uh, visit to China is very significant and is a very big statement uh, considering uh, the history of most Filipino presidents in the past. Filipino presidents usually choose Washington or Tokyo as their maiden trips outside Southeast Asia. Mm -hmm. So I think this move by Marcus Jr. visiting China earlier this month was a huge move and could reflect his uh, foreign policy uh, for the Philippines in the future. So the uh, Marcos's predecessor, Rodrigo Duterte, he was famously um, uh, spurning the relationship with the United States. It, certainly the relationship soured under his presidency. How, how did uh, his, what was his approach toward China and how is what's happening here under Marcos a continuation of that or different from what happened with Duterte? Yes, uh, I think the Philippines historically is a strong U.S. ally. Uh, the Philippines is the only nation in Asia with a defense treaty with the United States. Uh, it, it has that distinction from the U.S. and uh, its history with it. But that all changed when former Philippine President Rodrigo Duterte became president in 2016. Duterte has harbored strong uh, hatred against the U.S. He's put to question the relevance of the Philippine-American alliance. He's refused to confront the. He's refused to confront China uh, in the South China Sea. He's instead uh, befriended China in many fronts, including trade and sometimes military. Uh, he has also drawn the nation closer to Russia and China and has uh, agitated his uh, Western allies. Duterte said this during his vi visit to Beijing in October 2016. He said, the foreign policy gears now towards China. No more American interference, no more American military exercises. China has been a friend of the Philippines and the roots of our bonds are very deep and not easily severed. Even as we arrive in Beijing, close to winter, this is a springtime of our relationship, Duterte said. But since Philippine presidents only serve one six-year terms, Duterte's presidency, Duterte's presidency ended in May last year. But he is succeeded by the son of late dictator, Ferdinand Marcos Sr., who happened to formalize Philippine-Sino relations in 1976 with Mao Zedong. Mm. Though Duterte didn't name a successor and didn't endorse any presidential candidate in the lead-up to the election, Marcos Jr. is widely seen by many Filipinos as Duterte's anointed successor. Marcos selected Duterte's daughter as his running mate. Mm -hmm. Marcos has also never criticized his predecessor. Instead, he praised his pro-Beijing foreign policy, famously quipping, quote, the policy of engagement which the, the Duterte government is implementing. Although it is criticized, it is the right way to go. Because whatever we do, we can't go to war." End quote. 
whatever we do, we can't go to war? Yes, sir. So do you feel like it, what's motivating the Filipino leadership here is a fear of China? Uh, I mean, uh, if you look at the polls about China, uh, yes, Filipino actually do fear China. But uh, on the leadership level, uh, such as the presidency under Marcos, I think uh, there's uh, the leadership uh, sees a lot of uh, potential for uh, benefit, potential for uh, growth, for economic development, especially if uh, if he chooses to pursue closer relations with China. So I think the leadership. Uh, of the Philippines is what's uh, gonna matter there. So it, it China definitely has been making some threats uh, against the Philippines. It's not entirely uh, a friendly overture that that China is making here. The the way that Marcos and Xi Jinping are were speaking at this meeting, it sounds like you know we're just really close friends, and w there's a lot of opportunity here. But uh, China has actually made it pretty clear that uh, they expect the Philippines to get into line, right? Yes, sir. So what what is it that uh, what is China trying to achieve by prioritizing this relationship? Uh, I think China's desire uh, for greater control over the Philippines is driven largely by geography. China has always feared a U.S. blockade in the first island chain. The first island chain is a series of islands in China's periphery running from Japan to Indonesia. Indonesia. If the U.S. blocks China from access to this first island chain, China will be locked out of world trade including many of the energy energy imports that the nation's economy relies on. One of the ways China can avoid such a blockade is by making an alliance with one of the countries along the first island chain. This would be the Philippines. If the Philippines allowed China to use its waters and ports as a secure passage, this would be a, basically a death blow to the U.S. Mm and wouldn't be able to use the Philippines and wouldn't be able to block China in this case. Yeah, that's a really important point because uh, it does seem like China has been increasing in its capability and particularly its naval capability uh, in recent years. And the United States, to have that close ally in the Philippines really is it's among the uh, most important tools that it would have in its arsenal to be able to uh, to provide any kind of check against China for the Philippines to be turning it does seem like China is well aware of the strategic importance of wresting the Philippines uh, alliance away from the United States I think that point would be uh, very relevant uh, when it comes to uh, the Taiwan Strait crisis because uh, the U.S. is uh, locked with China if ever a war uh, ensues between those two powers. So if China decides to invade Taiwan militarily, the Philippines uh, could actually be a strategic uh, location uh, for such a scenario, uh, along with Japan. And if the U.S. gets access to some of the Philippines' military bases, 
China could be fighting a war with many fronts in such a scenario. On the other hand, if China gets access to Philippine bases, it could be in a better position to invade Taiwan and fend off the U.S. This move by the Philippines into China's orbit and away from the United States, this is actually something that is discussed in biblical prophecy, and those who, looking at the, the prophecies of Asia, would have expected this to happen at some point. Can you just explain that aspect of it? Yes, for sure, sir. Uh, developing Sino-Philippine relations is significant because, uh, prophecy, because of a prophecy found in Revelation 16, verse 12, wherein an alliance of Asian nations called the Kings of the East will play a pivotal role in the time leading up to Christ's second coming. Ezekiel 38 provides more details about this alliance, including the fact that it will be led primarily by Russia and secondarily by, by China. Revelation 9 shows that this Kings of the East Asian alliance will field a jaw-dropping army of 200 million men. With the warming relations between the Philippines and China and the Philippines' proximity to the Asian giant, we could see the Philippines contribute to this army. Prophecy also describes a time when the United States, one of the modern descendants of the ancient nation of Israel, will retreat from the world scene and become powerless as a nation. In Leviticus 26, God outlines the blessings ancient Israel and its descendants would receive if they obeyed God and curses if they disobeyed. Verse 19 states that God will break the pride of Israel's power. A quick look at America's wartime history after World War II shows that God has indeed broken the pride of America's power. The once great superpower that many nations like the Philippines revered has lost the will to defend its allies from nations such as China. This is why the strong bond between the Philippines and the U.S. is certain to break. So how do you uh, feel about this as, uh, as a Filipino and, a, and a, an America lover? <laughs> I mean, growing growing up, um, I've always loved America. I love uh, the influence that America has on the Philippines. Um, I love. I mean, I'm. I learned how to speak English, uh, the language that America gave to the Philippines. So, I have great love for America. But seeing uh, what's happening to the Philippines and how. Uh, our leadership has steered this nation uh, foreign policy-wise. Uh, I think uh, I think it was a great uh, study for me to be able to study uh, China and uh, his, and China's history with Marcos uh, during the 1970s. This was uh, before. Uh, Marcus Jr. even announced his uh, bid for the presidency, so I think that part of uh, my personal history was a bit interesting because as soon as uh, he announced his, presence, as his presidency and after he won that election, I was able to uh, bring up a lot of history that would uh, support uh, the articles that I would write for mm. the trumpet. Mm -hmm. Well, very good. We appreciate the uh, the last one that you wrote for us. Philippine President Visits China Shifts Relations into High Gear. 
We've been talking with Trumpet contributor Nikolai Gidiar about the Philippines' growing relationship with China. You can check out his article at thetrumpet.com. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us, Nikolai. You're welcome. Thanks for this opportunity. It's time for today's Last Word. If you had no spine, your body would be like a bowl of jello without the bowl. It'd be like a skyscraper after demolition. You know, when they blow it up and it falls directly onto itself in a heap of rubble. Your spine is the anchor for everything in your body. Your head is perched on it. Your rib cage hinges on it. Your muscles are attached to it like lines to the mast of a ship. A strong backbone enables you to stand upright, to remain balanced, to move with confidence. It has 24 individual ring-shaped bones called vertebrae, which serve as a protective case for your spinal cord. That's the main highway for information from the brain to every other part of the body. If you cut that cord, you'd go numb and lose muscle control. Just about every animal has a backbone. Lions, bears, fish... Birds, snakes, even insects have one, though theirs is often on the outside of their little bodies. But what's the best an animal can manage to be without having a spine? A jellyfish, a squid, or a worm. If you look up spine in the dictionary, the first definition will be something like the vertebral column, backbone. Everybody has one of those. But around the fourth definition, you'll probably find a quality which constitutes strength, resolution, stamina. Though it's just as important, this type of spine isn't nearly so common. And it was this latter meaning that Albert Hubbard intended when he wrote, It is not book learning that young men need, nor instruction about this and that, but a stiffening of the vertebrae which will cause them to be loyal to a trust, to act promptly, concentrate their energies. Loyalty, prompt action, concentration, energy, Those things come with having a strong metaphorical spine. Having a spine means working hard in school or on the job, even when you feel like ducking away. It means doing what needs to be done. It means following through with what you say you'll do and fulfilling your responsibilities. It means earning a reputation for being Mr. or Mrs. Dependable. Having a spine means not going squishy or limp under pressure. It means keeping anchored, standing up tall for what you know is right. As it says in Exodus 23 and verse 2, you shall not follow a multitude to do evil. Having a spine means sometimes not being afraid of confrontation. It means not being a coward. Deuteronomy 31 verse 6 says, Be strong and of a good courage. Fear not, nor be afraid of them. For the eternal your God, he it is that goes with you. He will not fail you nor forsake you. 
Having a spine means speaking the truth and saying what needs to be said, even when it could have frightening consequences. Having a spine can mean knowing when to admit you're wrong, putting the truth above your own pride. It means being upright, honest, loyal to God, loyal to family and friends. Often it means putting others' needs above your own. When you hear someone called a spineless worm, usually that means he put himself first, even to another's hurt. Having a spine means being tough. You're not a squid. Your body was made to be used, running and dancing, swimming, chopping, lifting. You can take it. Too much TV, too much video games, and you actually start looking like a jellyfish. Having a spine will hold your life together, just like it holds your body together. It'll preserve your relationships and ensure success on your job. The English Standard Version of Proverbs 10.9 says, He that walks uprightly walks surely, but he that perverts his ways shall be known. Or he who makes his ways crooked will be found out. Walk uprightly. An individual with a strong physical and moral spine. The blessings are immeasurable. Now, granted, it's not easy. It takes effort to develop and strengthen real backbone. It doesn't come naturally. You may have been born with 24 fully functional vertebrae in your body and still be a mental or emotional quadriplegic. When we talk about spine, we're really talking about developing the most important thing possible in your life, the thing that will enable you to die happy, character. So how do you strengthen your backbone? First, you learn the right way to live. Just keep that up your whole life long. Study the right way to live. Know that way. And next, buckle down and do what you know you should, no matter how hard it is. And then when you fail, that's the most important time to show some spine. Get back up and try harder. And most importantly, look to God to supply you the strength you need. He promises in Isaiah 41, Fear you not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yea, I will help you. Yea, I will uphold you with the right hand of my righteousness. That's where the character you need ultimately comes from. But God will only give it to you as he sees you going after it. Is your backbone weak? You have everything to gain from a stiffening of the vertebrae, developing some spine. Stand up to the challenge. I'm Joel Hilliker, and that will do it for today's Trumpet Hour. You can send me any thoughts on today's program to letters at thetrumpet.com. Thanks to our contributors, Andrew Miller, Richard Palmer, and Nikolai Giliar. Thanks to Nick Irwin and Jesse Hester for engineering and production. I'll leave you with this thought from Melody Beattie. Gratitude unlocks the fullness of life. It turns what we have into enough and more. Thank you for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world.
You've been listening to Trumpet Hour on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG, and online at kpcg.fm. Understand your world. 